0: We're talking about the birth of coveting. As we think about the uncontrollable sin, to covet is to delight in something. And it's a neutral word. It's positive or negative, depending on what is delighted in. Delighting in something belonging to another violates the 10th commandment. Uh, We read in the book of Exodus, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor, when what we take delight in belongs to our neighbor, we cross the line and we violate the Tenth Commandment. Um, The Tenth Commandment, they don't merely prohibit actions They prohibit desires, and Jesus is the one that kind of took that. That might have been pushed aside, but Jesus took the the Ten Commandments and really put a sharp edge on them, And, and indicating if you apply these to the commandments, here's the way it looks. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Goes on, you said, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. These are strong words and we'll figure out how in the world do we apply these in our day, but let's, as we just look at them, what it suggests is, God doesn't go easier on someone who hasn't committed adultery if that person is lusted, which puts a much finer edge on the commandment. God doesn't go easier on someone who hasn't murdered if they've been angry. Again, we might say we'll never murder anybody, but anger is not something that we can control. What do we do with this at one level? And we can, we can say that before we judge someone because of what they do, let's remember that God doesn't judge us based on what we do alone, but what we think and what we desire. Paul cared very much about keeping the commandments and he didn't stumble on many, I would imagine, with respect to action. But he talks about his struggle in trying to control coveting. And let's look and see what he says. I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. But it indicates sin seizes the opportunity afforded by the commandment. Sin in the Bible, when Paul talks about it, is not just an act we do, but a power that controls us. And that's when Paul talks about sin here, it's more a power that makes us do acts. And it says sin seizes the opportunity afforded by the commandment. It it works a little bit the way some martial arts work jujitsu. I'm familiar. It seems that jujitsu is when an, you try to take someone's initiative in coming towards you and actually use their impetus to control them. So if somebody comes it me, Mark, come on up here. Okay, we'll get Mark. Mark Mark's a tough guy. I'll tell you what. Okay, maybe not. (laughs) So the way this works then, in terms of the image of seizing the opportunity with Jiu-Jitsu, if he goes and tries to hit me, what I'll do then, I will take the impetus of his blow and use it to control him. (laughs) Thanks, Mark. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, Sin seizes the opportunity afforded by the commandment. We try to take control of coveting, control of desiring. We try to master it. And in trying to master it, sin actually does what I didn't do to Mark, but might would have. Sin takes the initiative that we do in trying to control that, and we end up on our back really struggling with more sin and more desires that's what it says when you try to control coveting in order to be accepted by god you're going to end up coveting more that's what paul tells us and that's a that's a really difficult thing the ten commandments according to paul produce the very behaviors they prohibit um trying to keep the tenth commandment increases it when taken seriously life under the old covenant is and i'm going to pick my word carefully intolerable when taken seriously when we think of paul i don't know what paul wrestled with i don't imagine that somebody who is as devoted as he was he didn't probably have huge issues with a bunch of sins he had an issue we know with one coveting and that's what he describes here at some level he tried to control his desires and what he found A couple things coveting counts coveting counts if you're going to keep the Ten Commandments if you're going to keep the Ten Commandments in order to try to make God happy you have to control coveting coveting counts Here's the problem. If you try to control coveting and you're serious about it, you're going to find, as Paul did, that coveting is uncontrollable. Where does that leave us? Um, Well, we end up looking at something and we'll think about coveting, the birth of coveting this morning. But um, the old covenant, which seems to promote the very things they prohibit, it wasn't intended to be eternal it was intended to be temporary it was intended that the old covenant would be set aside when jesus came and created a new covenant which has different commandments it says love one another love god and love one another it doesn't tell us don't try to wrestle and control your desires and as we talked about last week and we'll talk about during the week i'm not going to talk about it as much but we talked about three steps Last week, and I'll just remind us of them, we'll talk about them. Number one, in terms of three steps to deal with the uncontrollable sin, is to turn down condemnation. The more you condemn and control what you do and think, I want you to listen to me. The more you try to control unwelcome, unwanted thoughts and feelings, the more inflamed they're going to become. God does not condemn under the new covenant our thoughts or our actions. That's what it suggests. I will be helios to their unrighteousnesses and remember their sins no more. So step one, and this takes us a long time, we have to learn to be a little more gentle with ourselves, less judgmental, I shouldn't think that. That's stupid. We've we really got to dial that down. You said, oh, that that's, but that's just going to lead to sin. But sin is not just an act. It's about what we think. And when we try to control what we think, we end up again. So turn down condemnation and turn up awareness. We, we do and think a lot of things we don't want to do and think and that's where jesus is is just amazing to me on the night before he is going to go back he ends up feeling a couple things take this cup from me i don't want to die thy will be done and these are different desires and what jesus does he doesn't control them he just is aware of them and he expresses them he expresses them to his father because he knows that he can he's not being judged expression we can't express what we're not aware of. We can't be aware of fully what we're condemning, and that's why the first step is to decrease condemnation. Let's think, though, that's by way of review. Let's think about coveting and where it was born. Turn to Genesis. Now the serpent said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. The one thing we see, coveting first shows up in paradise, in a place where there's no sickness or pain. There's no sin. There's no wrong. There's no violence. There's no war. There's no poverty. There's no hunger. There's no need. People have what they need. Coveting ends up showing up in the Garden of Eden. Um, We can understand why coveting would show up in unfortunate places in our world. It's really a lot more difficult to figure out how coveting could show us in paradise. How does that work? Let's try to look at it a little bit and dig a little deeply and see if we can figure this out. When we think about coveting, it it attached to a couple of things. Number one, it attached to fruit. It says, the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye. A coveting attached to sensory things. Sensory things. Taste. Smell. Hearing. Touch. She saw the food. It looked good. Um, She wanted to taste it. It tasted good it it was pleasing sensory things uh can attach to things that we want to eat, smell, think not just eat and smell not just those things, but it can also attach to things we want to think about intellectual things uh it says in the it says um, and also the fruit was desirable for gaining wisdom. There was an intellectual, not just a sensual component. She wanted wisdom. Eve wanted the knowledge that the fruit would bring. Um, these desires grew up in paradise. And how does this happen? Well, if we're gonna look for why, then we've got to consider the serpent and, and what he, the influence he has. He ends up saying um, that you will not surely die the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God didn't really mean what he said when he said you're going to die. And the serpent then suggests that, well, he attack God's character. God says things and doesn't really mean it. You know, God says you'll die, but he really didn't mean die. And that's the number one attack is Satan attacks God's character. You really can't trust God to tell the truth. You really can't trust God to say what he really means. And then he goes on to, from there, he also attacks um, his commitment. He says, God doesn't want you to be like him, knowing good and evil, um, suggesting that God is withholding something from you because he's not that committed to you. A couple of things. There is a, if we are connected to God and God is connected to good, there's a lot of confidence in that. Let's suggest, say if your connection with God is unbreakable. Your connection with God is unbreakable. And God's commitment to good is unbreakable. That puts you in a pretty good spot. If you're connected to God and God's connected to good, you're connected to good. Unless your connection to God can be dissolved. If God's character is such, that his commitment is such that you really can't trust him to do what's good for you. And that's what the serpent attacks. God's commitment to you is not all that seems to be. And if your God's commitment to you was not solid, that puts you in a, a, a less secure place, doesn't it? Or maybe your commitment to God is solid and God's commitment to good is not solid. And therefore you wouldn't end up good at good there either. Because the fact is that um, God lies and he really doesn't, you really can't trust him. When she lost confidence, and this is the thing that I want you to, if you're going to walk out with anything today, this will be it. The relationship between confidence and coveting. That's what I'm going to want you to, to, to walk away with. The, the confidence and coveting. Well, I think what happens here, when Eve lost confidence in God's character, and his commitment when she lost confidence in god's character and commitment coveting grew as confidence decreased coveting increased i think that's the way it works and when confidence increases coveting decreases it really is about confidence when she doubted that she could trust god sensual desires became uncontrollable. And I'm picking my word carefully. When her confidence decreased, sensual desires became uncontrollable. I need to have that. I need to taste that. I need to touch that. I need to smell that. It's something we do in order to deal with failing confidence. Not only confidence, uh, when confidence decreased, her desire for wisdom, increased and became uncontrollable. If she couldn't trust God to do good by her relative to what he knew, then she needed to know things so she could protect herself. Um, as her confidence in God decreased, her fear increased. In fact, here's the way I, I might define coveting this way coveting is fearful hunger. Fearful hunger. You ever seen a child, infant, when they have, they become hungry and haven't been fed for whatever the reason, and, and when they would like to have been fed and it goes past the point where they are hungry, they become angry and agitated and afraid. And then what <laughs> ends up happening, you try to give the, give them the bottle When they're angry and afraid, and and sometimes, you know, you try to... And and, then they just, they really won't take the bottle. What needs to happen? They need to be soothed. Comforted. And then they calm down. Their confidence increases. Their fear. And then they they can take in the nourishment. Coveting is fearful hunger. Hunger is not optional. We're going to be hungry for things. We're not going to get our needs met. We're going to think things we don't want to think. We are. We're going to want things we're not going to want to want. If our sense is that we can't trust God because of these things we want, when our confidence goes down, our coveting is going to go up, and we're going to find our being drawn to sensual things, are drawn to intellectual things in order to protect ourselves because we don't really trust that God will protect us. All of us have an issue with believing that God will protect us. So it would make sense, would it not? If we're going to deal with coveting? should we focus on decreasing coveting, or should we focus on increasing confidence? What do you think? Should we focus on decreasing coveting or focus on increasing confidence? What do you think? Increasing confidence. That's going to be the deal because as our confidence grows up, our coveting goes down. Confidence and coveting. That's the thing I want you to remember from today. As confidence in God's character and commitment go up, coveting goes down. It's never, we're never going to get rid of it. It is her, it's Eve's image of God that allowed fear to take root. What the serpent did, he successfully cultivated a mental representation of inconsistent responsiveness. Listen to me, shh, hey. You really can't trust him. Listen to me. And when that gets inside, when we start to develop a mental representation of inconsistent responses and all of us deal with it as that, I can't really trust God. I mean, how could I trust Him when I think things like this? How can I trust Him when I do things like this and what we end up doing? We end up gazing at our actions and glancing at God. If I want to... If I want to increase my confidence, would it make sense for me to gaze at my behavior in order to increase my confidence in God? Question. Okay, I want to grow my confidence in God, right? I want to grow my confidence in God. If I want to grow my confidence in God, does it make sense that I would gaze at my behavior? Am I going to increase my confidence in God by gazing at what I do and don't do? No, absolutely not. My confidence in God will decrease, but that's what we tend to do. Look at you. What are you thinking? Look what you, th- and it doesn't make sense to, well, the, the real deal is if we're going to create confidence in God, you know, what we got to do, we've got to switch our gaze and our glance. We've got to gaze at him and his promises and then glance at ourselves. And the interesting thing, when we do that, the behaviors that we're trying to control, will end up having an easier time because as confidence increases, coveting decreases. So focus on increasing your confidence. So here's what I would say. Stop gazing at your behavior. Stop trying to control your thoughts. Tune in his commitments and his promises. And you say, well, isn't that, no, it's not nice. It's necessary. This is not just a nice thing. It's the only way to deal with the uncontrollable sin. It's the only way to make a dent in it is by increasing dialing in our awareness of God's promises and his commitments. Because as confidence increases, coveting decreases. um, There's an article in the Day 37, I just included it in yours. I will read it if you want to follow along. It's it's um, day 37 of 40 days with the 10 commitments. From Jeremiah 3240, the sheets in your worship fold, if you want to read along with me. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. A, a tree, a serpent, a temptation. It was over quickly. No matter how much we have, our attention can be quickly drawn away to what we don't have. No matter how good our life is, we can find ourselves longing for more. Just ask Adam and Eve. The seeds of discontent were able to take root and grow in the soil of paradise. In a perfect environment. They had everything they could ever want, and yet they could not resist wanting more. It was the serpent who was able to make the forbidden fruit impossible to resist. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You can't trust that God really cares about you. You can't trust that God really wants what is good for you. God's holding out on you. She had no response. You know the rest of the story. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Does God really care about you? Does God really want what is good for you? Is God holding out on you? There's the answer. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? God the Father gave up his son, Jesus Christ, for you. If he did not care about you, he would not have sent his son for your benefit. God the Father gave up his son, Jesus Christ, for you. If he did not want what is good for you, he would not have sent a son for your benefit. No matter how things may appear, God does care about you. God does want what is good for you. He is not holding out on you. Good is ahead of you. Not just the influence of the serpent. Very briefly, Mark's going to come up, and this kind of segues to bring him up to talk about hope and, and our 28th year. Um, I think the influence of Adam, it says, the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the tree in the garden but god did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die when god told adam and eve adam excuse me when god told adam kind of what was the deal before he had created eve um, he said you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden he said don't eat from it then when the serpent asked Eve about the directive she said we are not supposed to eat of it and we're not even supposed to touch it wait a minute let's play that back God says to Adam don't eat from the fruit okay now let's go forward and she says don't touch the fruit where did that come from you know I always suggest I think Adam changed the message a little bit. He was afraid that that would happen, and so he altered the message in order to control Eve. So he put a fence around the law. The law was don't eat, but he put a fence around it saying don't even touch it. And why did he do that? Why did he do that? Would you agree with me? He was... Afraid what was he afraid of? who was he afraid of God afraid that God would take Eve, so he had to protect Eve from God, coveting his fearful hunger. that fear did not begin with the serpent you know, it began with began with the husband it began with Adam. Uh-oh. Coveting begins, and can begin, when those tasked to represent God alter the message in order to control people. That's what Adam did. That's something Mark's going to come up in just a second. What we determined from the beginning of hope, we would never alter the message, ever, in order to try to control people. Never. That we would continue to talk about the commitments that God makes, the promises that God makes, and it sometimes feels like my my behavior is such that you really need to call me on the carpet. And the fact is, that is wrong. You don't need to be called on the carpet because if that can if that can control your behavior, what can it control? It can't control your thoughts. And that's what God asks of us. So we'll continue to do, and Mark, come on up. Mark's going to talk a little bit about um, hope and as an ongoing thing. So we've, come on up, Mark. We've, we've been serious about guarding the message because that's, as we gaze at him, and gaze at his commitments, you, you understand, right? right? So as we gaze our, when
1: confidence is up, guarding goes now. Awesome. Thank you, Mike. Hey, good to see everybody. Uh, The faster I talk, the sooner we eat. (laughs) So I'm gonna plow through this. Uh, Why Hope Community Church? Why? Why do we exist as a congregation? Uh, Hope Community Church was started now 28 years ago by a group of people who got together and realized that Sioux Falls does not have enough churches. Thank you for laughing. (laughs) Better? (laughs) Better. All right. Thank you. When I hear ringing, I think, God, does anybody else hear that, or is that just in my head? (laughs) I actually... uh... Appreciate that. It reminds me of my first job at Hope was Projector Man, and we had a demon-possessed slide projector to show the song things, and that thing it had to take off on, have a life of its own, and there were times all I could do was just stand up, turn around everybody and wave, <laughs> try to explain, it's not me, this thing is, needs an exorcist. <laughs> all right. Hope Community Church was started 28 years ago by a group of people who saw what grace could do. It was started by a group of people who experienced grace. A lot of the early members were actually people who came out of legalistic, law-based, mixing Old and New Testament churches. And... We might not have always understood what it was, but we definitely knew what it was not. We knew there was something wrong, inherently wrong, with the churches that we came out of. So that leads the question, then, why didn't we name this Grace Church? Well, there's a couple of reasons. (laughs) But one of the main reasons that we landed on hope is because hope is the fruit of grace. Trees are not known by their roots, but by their fruits. An apple tree produces apples, pear trees produce pears, a money tree produces money. And hope is the fruit of grace. And we want to be known not just for grace, but especially for the hope that that grace produces. So, and we also added community into the name as a foundational thing because we also all understood that church is all about community. It's all about relationships. God does not build churches out of bricks and mortar or sticks and stone. God builds his church out of flesh and blood. It's always about the people. So, We also wanted our name to capture that foundational belief on why we exist. Uh, And now here we are, 28 years later, which it was a miracle that we got started. It's a miracle that we've survived. It's a miracle that we're sitting here where we are today. And all of the credit goes to God for that and for the people. So we thank you for your continued investment and hope. Now, where are we, where do we find ourselves today? Uh, or I think most of us are aware of this uh, thing going around called COVID-19. You heard of that? Yeah. And if you haven't, got some bigger problems. <laughs> but the problem with surviving COVID-19, it, it's not just about this illness that was going around, but it was also a challenge with the varied responses to it. And we could go on and on about all of the friction, all of the challenges, all of the problems created, not just by COVID, but by how people thought the best way was to respond to it. And hope church certainly wasn't immune from that. Uh, The COVID thing strained finances, it strained relationships, it strained people's pursuits at educations and careers. It put a lot of undue pressure on all aspects of life. So now, like all of these other churches in our community, we find ourselves in somewhat of a rebuilding phase. And as we crawl out of our bunkers and we're trying to reconnect, people are not only reevaluating their connections, but also their levels of commitment. So we find ourselves personally, individually and collectively trying to find out what the new normal looks like. And as we move forward, that is one of the challenges that we're facing here as a congregation. And in order to facilitate reconnecting, One of the things that uh, we have chosen to do is start a new early morning service at 9 a.m. that we call First Community to try and recapture some of the spirit of the early church, the first church. It's more personal. It's more interactive. It's a great place to ask questions. And it's just one more attempt that we have, one of probably many going forward, where we're going to try some different ways of accomplishing our mission of carrying the message of grace. Um, And beyond that, the other major change that we're seeing uh, currently is that our external community is changing. Uh, Instead of us moving to town, we realize now town is moving to us. (laughs) As you look around, you see all the signs up for sale, development going on. And I think we're all going to be amazed at how quickly things develop around us. And as families move in and individuals move in and as as they build up, they've already built schools and schools attract homes and as a community, builds up around us it's also going to present us with a lot of great opportunities to connect with the neighborhood around us and the people that move in around us so again we're excited about that because we know that we always wanted to be part of a greater community and it's going to enable us to do that because the people are physically moving to us Uh, and that leads to the final piece of where are we going next Where are we headed as a congregation? And from the start, we have always been more interested in building a community. Not just building a church like a building, but building a community. And that means building relationships. As we look to the future, what we're really interested in is to facilitate the connections we have in here and see how those can translate into better connections out there. So that is gonna be one of our primary uh areas of focus moving forward. And our discussions in the Board of Elders, we have been pretty much coming to terms with the fact that we don't believe that we're ever going to be a huge church. And believe me, it's not because we wouldn't love to. <laughs> And it's not like we're intentionally trying to stay small. But we're honest enough to understand that the message we carry is not one that's as attractive as what other churches are offering. I mean, if you're looking for glitz and glamour or entertainment or uh, something pleasing to the ears, this might not be it. But again, it goes back to our core values, people getting what they need, not just what they like. And not that this isn't attractive or we don't like it. But sometimes it's like trying to get a a baby to eat something or a child. It's, you know, they they will like it, but first you got to get them to try it. And that's how we are. So what... that means that our challenge for the foreseeable future is how to grow our ministry without outgrowing our current facilities. And so we're also gonna be looking at some out of the box options because we live in the type of world today where communication has all kinds of definitions. There's all kinds of ways to carry a message. And it's not limited to just bringing people to a certain place or limited to, uh, just a certain time, and we're going to always continue to explore different ways that we can package and present the message here and to try and get it to the maximum number of people possible. So, and as we grow our, our ministry that way, we've been blessed with a couple of the very, very good assets in order to accomplish that. And so... To wrap this up, I just hope that we all are very encouraged by the two greatest assets that we have right now are our message and our people. You thought we were going to say our building and bank account, right? (laughs) No. The two greatest things that we have been blessed with as a church community is our message and our people. And that's how we got to where we're at today, and that's exactly how we are gonna move forward as we grow our ministry. Because those two things, equipped with the people we have and the message we have, there is nothing that can stop us as a congregation. Because people in this world, more than ever before, are living in a lost world, a hurting world, Their relationships are strained. People are disconnected. And that's why the message we carry has more depth and weight today than it ever has. It resonates more than it ever has. People need this more than they've ever needed it before. And that's why we are so excited, so encouraged about the future, is because we know that we have something that people need. And if we package it right, they can also, we can make it attractive because it is attractive by its nature. Grace is attractive. And they'll realize it's also something they want. So we're going to transition back into the fireside room. We're going to sit down, have a meal together. As Randy mentioned, we prepared uh, a simple uh, front and back uh, two-page sheet here to uh, answer some of your questions. We hope that you see this as an opportunity. Please get all of your questions answered. For those attending via Zoom, we haven't forgotten you. Uh, uh, Denise set it up, so we're emailing this same uh, information sheet out. I think it went out at just now at 11.30 a.m., so you can find that on your email account. If you didn't get it, it probably means you're not signed up for our weekly emails. You can sign up easily by info at sfhopechurch.com, info at sfhopechurch.com. Uh, sfhopechurch.com. And, uh, and you can find that on the website. If you can get to that, you can sign up for the mailing list. Uh, so thank you. We hope you can stick around for the meal. If you can't, if you want to grab one of those sheets on the way out to kind of try and help you understand at a little deeper level where we're at, where we came from, and where we're going. That'd be great. And with that, we'll just pray for our meal and move back to the food. So, uh, Lord, thank you for 28 years of ministry, of a message, of 28 years of hope. And, as we move forward, we just continue hope pray to, that you continue to guide us to bless us and direct us and to use us. Uh, thank you for this meal that we're about to receive. We pray that you bless it to our use in Jesus name. we pray Amen.